This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the VA is already processing claims for some veterans under the PACT Act. And it's stepping up hiring as it gets ready to fully implement the new legislation. The VA's lead doctor joins us to discuss the changes. Then, there are over two million civilian workers powering the federal government. A panel of journalists highlight the top stories of 2022 and the issues to watch in 2023. And over 200 million people worldwide are struggling with food insecurity. That's according to a recent UN report. The head of the Foreign Agricultural Service explains how the agency is working with other countries to combat that crisis. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. In August, the president signed the PACT Act into law. It expands the number of presumed illnesses related to toxic exposure, making it easier for veterans to receive benefits. Dr. Sharif El-Nahal is the Undersecretary of Veterans Affairs for Health. Dr. El-Nahal, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Remind us of the changes under the PACT Act. So this is a once-in-a-generation expansion of veterans' benefits that the president signed into law back in August. For so many years, veterans, veteran service organizations, and advocates have been calling for us to serve veterans who are exposed to toxins during their deployments. Uh, burn pits in the Middle East, Agent Orange in Vietnam, numerous exposures in the Gulf War. And we are finally able to answer that call because the president's leadership and Congress who gave us the authority to do this. And so we've already received over 170,000 applications for benefits from this. We've screened over 750,000 veterans across the country. And this week we're doing over 90 events to get the word out about these new benefits to veterans everywhere. Tell me what are the new illnesses that are being covered now? It's uh, a lot of different conditions that folks may uh, have as a result of these exposures. So high blood pressure as, as a result of exposures in Vietnam, uh, some blood conditions as well from that, but also uh, respiratory cancers, cancers of the head and neck, uh, of the GI tract, and so many other areas of the body, but also more common conditions like asthma, sinusitis, rhinitis. And so chances are, if you're contending with a chronic condition as a veteran and you were exposed to one of these things during your deployments, you may qualify for even more benefits. The VA just started processing claims for termini terminally ill veterans. Talk about that decision. That's right, we were very concerned about having to wait to uh, finally approve benefits for folks who had conditions uh, that may end their life. And so uh, as a result, the agency really uh, decided to take the lead on this, make sure that we process those claims first. That started this past Monday. And so we're gonna really try to speed that up to provide everything we can to vets who may be near the end of their life. So when all claims uh, start being processed, are there certain groups that are being prioritized over others? Absolutely. So as you said, uh, terminally ill veterans, but also veterans with cancer. Uh, we know that time to treatment is so important in determining the outcome for people with cancer. And so that's why we're prioritizing those first. As you said, the, the VA is screening for toxic exposure. What's that process like? It's really a simple two-question screening that happens right in clinic when a veteran is seeing their primary care physician, basically listing out the types of things that they may have been exposed to uh, and asking them if they recall whether they've been exposed during their deployments. That's the first step in connecting these veterans to even more benefits. 
You're expecting a, a big surge, obviously, of uh, the number of claims and vets needing care. So how are you ramping up for that? How many people are you going to need to hire? We're doing everything we can to prepare. And as you mentioned, hiring enough people is the first step for that. The Veterans Benefits Administration uh, is working really hard to hire folks. We also just had an onboarding surge event across the country in medical centers everywhere that onboarded over 12,800 new employees to be able to staff our clinics and our hospitals to prepare for new veterans and veterans that may rely on us more. And so we're really trying to ramp up. You know, medical professionals are in high demand. Why would a, a medical professional choose to work in the public sector when the private sector is so lucrative? Well, first of all, I think we have the most important and best mission uh, in the federal government and across American health care. These are heroes who sacrifice themselves and put themselves on the line for our freedom. That's the most important reason. But also, the PACT Act itself actually afforded us even more reasons why folks would want to work at VA. Uh, we have higher recruitment and retention bonuses, the ability to pay people even more now. And so I think all of those things will help with recruitment and retention. And how many people are, are yet to be hired? Do you have a number? We have to hire 52,000 people a year to keep up uh, with folks leaving the healthcare workforce, but also people retiring. And so we're looking to hire as many people as possible. If you're a healthcare worker out there, please consider VA. You were confirmed as Undersecretary of Health in July, the first person to be Senate confirmed uh, in the position since 2017. Tell us about that process and a little bit about your background. Well, it was an honor to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Uh, our colleagues in Congress work in a bipartisan way uh, to get things done, and that's how I'm approaching uh, this job. The veteran mission is too important, uh, and this is a really, really amazing opportunity to benefit folks uh, who protect my own freedom, and uh, it's just a huge honor. And you have a uh, background in public health as well. I was health commissioner in New Jersey, uh, which was uh, an amazing experience uh, protecting the health and well-being of 9 million residents there. Uh, and then I ran a safety net hospital uh, in Newark that was at the epicenter of the pandemic. So I hope those things give me the experience uh, to be able to serve veterans across the country. And I can't wait uh, to ramp up, especially for the PACT Act. Looking at the year ahead, tell me about some of your top priorities. Uh, so top priority is gearing up to uh, serve even more veterans with toxic exposures. To do that, we have to hire faster and more competitively. We have to get veterans the soonest and best care by expanding access. That means hiring as many people as possible, but also making ourselves more efficient to open up our system. Uh, we also have to uh, prioritize suicide prevention, the top clinical priority uh, in VA, because uh, we know that the invisible wounds of war are significant, uh, and every single veteran suicide is a tragedy. So we think all of it is preventable, and we're investing a lot of resources to tackle that problem. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing to tackle that problem. A lot of things. So first of all, we launched 988 Press 1 over the summer. The administration uh, was keen on making it an easier way for veterans to call us if they're uh, in crisis. We're also expanding access to our clinics across the country for mental health uh, to make sure folks have that longitudinal care. But but also, we're partnering with a lot of community-based organizations, and we've given over $50 million in grants to these organizations to partner with us to build that support network around veterans. All of that whole spectrum is important for our suicide prevention strategy. All right. El Nahal, uh, Dr. El Nahal, thank you so much for being on the program, and, and good luck with that program. Thank you so much. Coming next, we look back at the biggest federal workforce stories of 2022 and the issues at play for 2023. We'll be right back.
2022 saw some major changes for federal employees. We'll review the top news with Tanya Ballard-Brown, executive editor of Government Executive, and Jason Miller, executive editor of Federal News Network. Welcome to you both. Uh, Tanya, I want to start with you. The latest news is the employee pay raise of 4.6%. How significant is that? Very significant. It's the largest pay raise in 20 years since the G.W. Bush uh, era administration. So um, uh, that's the average uh, across the board pay raise. Though uh, one lawmaker uh, actually wanted a 5.1% increase and uh, was, has been pushing for that. There are still a few things that need to happen, though, before that pay raise actually goes into effect. The president needs to issue an executive order, and then OPM will update their uh, tables, pay tables. But 20 years is a long <laughs> time for them to see this larger raise, and there is still... Although inflation has been at historical highs. It has. And it's um, higher than 4.6%. It, ha it is, yes. And also the, the gap between uh, what uh, federal salaries and private sector salaries is about 24% now. So they're, they're still trying to inch closer <laughs> to closing that, except that gap keeps growing. So, Jason, the return to office is ongoing. Uh, how are agencies handling that? What did you see over 2022? There's two big stories that we followed. The first is obviously, okay, when are we going back? When do we have to be back? And how often do I have to be back? And we've, did, we've done several surveys of our readers and our listeners, and, and they've said, you know, for the most part, they like this hybrid workplace. About 60% said they work part-time at home, part-time in the office, maybe as little as one day a week, two days a pay period. Other people said I work about 30% said about fully remotely. And I think everyone likes that part. I think what we saw over the last year, however, was my agency is different than your agency, and that's not fair. Why can't OPM or OMB or whomever have a standard, hey, a minimum of this or maximum of that? And I think that really got frustrated because there's people who said, yes, I work at a three-letter agency, but I work in HR, and do I really need to be in the office the whole time? So I think there was a lot of that consternation early on. And have you seen that impact recruitment and retention? There's a whole big focus on recruitment and retention across the government. Part of it, obviously, is the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility piece that the Biden administration has been pushing. But the other piece is understanding that there's a little bit of a bathtub effect that's happening, where we don't have a lot of the new people are there. We have a bunch of people who have been there for 20, 25 years, and that middle is still falling down. And I think they're trying to say, hey, we can offer these benefits. Pay is okay. We can't do quite do as much as pay as everybody else but we have other better benefits. So I think they're really trying to focus on that recruitment piece. Tanya, there's been a lot of controversy around Schedule F. Remind us of what that is and what's going on. Uh, it, the last administration had implemented this new classification for uh, federal employees who were politically focused to reclassify them and basically make them at-will employees, which took them outside of the usual process for removing and hiring and firing. Nobody was actually reclassified, <laughs> but uh, there were maybe about 50,000 employees who were targeted as such um, to possibly be reclassified under the Schedule F Do you label. expect anything to happen with that in 23? We... Open to see because there was supposed to be some uh, legislation added to the defense authorization bill that would keep future presidents from being able to do this. It didn't make it into that bill. It, 
next year new legislation may show up, but currently it just sort of stands as is. Jason. Schedule F is one of those things that is a lot to do about potentially nothing, right? Because the Democrats still hold the Senate, Democrats still in the White House, so any bill even the House pushes through that's now held by the Republicans, that's not gonna go anywhere. So I think until the next election, Schedule F is basically a worry, but not a really big, big worry. I think you're gonna see Senator uh, Tim Kaine, Jerry Connolly from Virginia, the congressman, both pushing to, for legislation to ensure, as Tanya said, Schedule F can't come back up if there is a next Republican or president who wants to push that. So, Jason, let me ask you about TSP. This is a thrift savings plan where federal employees have their retirement. There was uh, a lot of problems this past summer. It was a rough year for the TSP. <laughs> and the folks, I know Kim Weaver comes on your show quite often. She's, she's a good person. Uh, she uh, took the brunt of that challenge uh, of, of the modernization effort. They had a new login. They had big customer uh, service problems in terms of calling and waiting for hours. Uh, we still hear today from our listeners and readers why can't they fix the TSP? Why is this still a problem? Why do we continue to, to not, I'm not able to do this or that? And, you know, big modernization projects, when you talk about technologies, have always been a challenge for any organization. The government gets a bad rap, but you see the same thing in any private sector organization too. And, and you know, the TSP, I think their one maybe challenge or one mistake I would point to is you gotta communicate communicate, well, and communicate again when it comes to these big IT modernization problems. Tanya, wrap things up for us. What are we expecting next year, especially with Republican control of Congress, of, of the House? Of the House? Well, I think that the, well, what they've said is that they intend to refocus on waste, fraud, and abuse in the agencies, and uh, some of their priorities are looking in that direction. Uh, hopeful things, uh, though, are that I think Jerry Connolly may get back to pushing for that 5.1% pay raise, uh, or even maybe larger. So um, I think there there were some uh, also some new hiring authorities uh, issued this year under uh, the infrastructure bill and also in the uh, PAC act sorry for uh, <laughs> right for the va and so there's been some hiring and some more hiring is is bound to happen uh, in the new year to staff up and help to all right we'll Why see don't what happens, happens. Yes. <laughs> tanya jason thanks so much for being on the program Straight ahead on Government Matters, the administrator of the USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service joins us to discuss how his agency is promoting trade overseas. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Within the U.S. Department of Agriculture is the Foreign Agricultural Service. Their work is now more important than ever as the world faces high levels of food insecurity. Daniel Whitley is the administrator of the agency. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So explain uh, on a very broad level the mission of your agency. Sure. So the Foreign Agricultural Service is the international arm of the USDA. We represent the interest of American agriculture worldwide. Over 20% of all agricultural production is destined for exports. So given that, we have a network of diplomats, foreign service officers, who serve in 100 countries and they, their mission is to be the eyes, the ears, and the voices of American agriculture to promote U.S. ag products. One of the areas hardest hit by the global food crisis is East Africa. Your agency has two different food um, assistance projects operating in that region. The first is called the McGovern Dole Program. 
Tell us about that. Yes, and this is one of our signature programs named after two senators who saw the value in food and food security for all of our citizens worldwide. The McGovern Dole program is a school feeding program targeting developing countries that are food deficit. This program really in many instances is the only f meal that these students get a day. And so I had a chance to visit one of these sites last month in Eceola, Kenya. And I can tell you, if you've never visited one of these sites, it is probably the most moving experience of my entire career. We actually had the opportunity to visit with the students, spend a little time with them, and to see the appreciation they have for American agriculture, our farmers, our ranchers, all of our producers was absolutely fascinating. So it is a key effort we have toward food security. You know, I'm curious as to how much do they know that this is coming from the United States and how much they appreciate that it is aid coming from the, uh, from America? Well, we have posts in the area that help implement these programs along with our implementing partners. Our implementing partner there is the World Food Program. So we're able to partner and provide technical assistance. It's not just the food, but we help with the facilities. We help with the serving of the food. We help with making sure that the food is served properly and it's safe. So we do a lot in conjunction with providing the food. Another program you have is called Food for Progress. What's that about? That is a monetization program. So that's a program where we donate ag commodities to a country and they sell those commodities for cash. And then though that cash is used to improve the infrastructure, used to improve the food systems, used to improve their knowledge of food safety, to help create an environment where we can export and sell more products into that country. And about how many uh, countries are you operating in? So we operate in about eight or nine new awards every year. They're usually five-year contracts. So you're usually talking about between 40 and 50 projects going on every single year. And what does the American taxpayer get in return for all this? Well, that's very interesting. If you think about it, exports support 7,550 jobs for every $1 billion we export. So last year we set a record in exports at $196 billion. So that's 196 times a billion jobs. And that's a lot for the farm economy, the rural economy, and ultimately the national economy. The, the current food crisis is hitting a lot of countries. Absolutely. Do you have the resources necessary to really combat that crisis and make a difference? You know, I think we do. I think it's a whole of government approach in this administration. We work closely with USAID, State Department, other, other departments around town, and there's a number of programs and a number of efforts. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has, cer has certainly exacerbated the issue, but through our innovation, through our technology, through trade, we're able to do our part and help resolve. But there's always things that we can do to help resolve the issue. Well, you mentioned trade because that's another part of your, your mission is increasing trade between the U.S. and other countries in agricultural and, and food products. Tell us about uh, the Market Access Program. So the MAP program is a marketing and promotion program. Agriculture is no different than any other commodities. You have to promote it, you have to advertise it, you have to brand it. So we get roughly $200 million annually from Congress that we receive matching funds from the private sector to go around the world and promote U.S. agricultural products. That leads to the success that we've achieved, like the $196 billion in record exports this year. You mentioned visiting Kenya. Mm -hmm. Tell me about some of your other travels and the impact that you've seen to this for this work. You know, the pandemic really put a lull into a number of our programs. So this was our first year operating trade missions and trade shows. This year we visited Dubai. 
Uh, we visited Manila, Philippines. We went to London. Uh, we just finished up a trip to Spain and we went to Kenya. Five trade missions. We had over 1,300 business-to-business meetings. We took over, over 100 agribusinesses and we recorded almost $50 million in first-year sales. So to say that we've come back with a roar would be an understatement. We're super excited to be back in business. So tell me about what you're going to be doing in 2023. So next year we're going to get things started in March, uh, taking a group to Panama and we'll follow that up with the Netherlands and Japan. So we're excited to be able to access our partners in Central uh, America in the Panama trade uh, mission, and then we'll visit the Netherlands and visit our partners in Europe and round out here into Asia and go to Japan late spring. You know, I'm just curious, Daniel, about your personal background and how you found yourself heading the Foreign Agricultural Service. Yeah, so uh, I'm a double Ag Econ kid. I received an Ag Econ degree, my bachelor's from Southern University in Baton Rouge, and my master's from LSU in Baton Rouge. And USDA is the only employee I've ever had. I had two internships in undergrad and started in the Foreign Ag Service back in 2001 and have loved it and enjoyed it ever since. So uh, just really enjoyed working on something that is so valuable to all of mankind. And do you see the food insecurity crisis um, getting better in 2023? What, what are we looking at here? Well, I do think we are working to improve relationships with our trading partners, with those who understand the value that trade has on addressing food security. We're advancing science, technology, and innovation each and every single day to again address where food security uh, concerns are most prevalent. And hopefully we'll get some traction in those areas and we'll bring down some of those food insecure concerns. All right, Daniel, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.